Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Alright, hello, good evening, and welcome to Ask a Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me tonight, as always, is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! How's it going? Good! Richmond is having fun. We're toppling statues. Oh, very nice. And also projecting things on statues. I think you found that picture. Yes, a picture of Harriet Tubman projected onto the Robert E. Lee, Lee. statue. Yep. Yes. Yeah. We've toppled Jefferson Davis, the smaller ones, essentially. Because mm-hmm. Jefferson Davis, it was just him. He's not on a horse. And um, then there's actually one in front of the theater building at VCU that we would see every day. It was like the Confederate Howitzers or something. I mean, it's a specific division, but the Confederate Howitzers. And they toppled that one. That one was pretty small, you know. Hmm. It was sort of a dude standing with a... I don't even think with a cannon. Maybe with like um, a rod or something. And um, so those are the ones that have been toppled. But there's graffiti on all of them. There's really interesting graffiti on the one that's up the hill from us. There's like this really tall hill that overlooks what used to be, or still is sort of the falls, which apparently is what, on the mm-hmm. James River, which is apparently what sort of gave it its name, Richmond its name. It supposedly looks like Richmond, England. Okay. And that statue, I think, is to the Confederate Navy, maybe? But anyway, it's on this really tall pillar. So it's on top of this tall hill that sort of overlooks the river, and then it's on a really tall pillar. Um, so that one's still up there, but they've graffitied it. There were some interesting Bible verses on it. Hmm. So, you know, people have been making definite statements. <laughs> yeah. Um, in some ways, it's it's a really great reminder, you know, sort of of, of public art. Um, you want to topple the statues, but there's actually something really powerful now about the pediments that they're that they were standing on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so instead of just replacing it all, there is something interesting about maybe keeping this or certainly having enough pictures, you know, and putting them up in museums to document it. But yes, so that's what's been happening here. Yeah, because, yeah, it's like adding footnotes. Yes. In a way. Yeah, exactly. And much more powerful than just a plaque somewhere that no one's going to read, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, that was sort of the original idea of what they do for the monuments on Monument Avenue. But finally, um, even the Monument Society, whatever exactly they're called, mm-hmm. issued a statement that said they unanimously supported removing the statues and that, um, you know, there had been discussion of putting plaques up, but that obviously that had not happened fast enough and nothing had sort of happened fast enough and the time was now passed. And they supported, <laughs> they supported removing them. Yeah. Yeah. So... That was good. But yes, so that is sort of where we are. Surprising, honestly. Yes. Um, But, you know, it's, it is sort of obvious. I mean, and Richmond, yeah, there, there are definitely conservative areas around us, but Richmond and North is, is very liberal, very blue. Virginia as a whole is turning bluer. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's not just the way the wind is blowing. I mean, there is a real feeling, I think, of understanding at this point. There's only one person whose family, I guess, held the land originally. So back in the 1890s and gave it to yeah. the city for the Robert E. Lee statue. And then, you know, in perpetuity, as long as the city of Richmond protected it and so on, um, did bring a suit to stop the removal, saying that the city did not deserve to, you know, have a say in this because they weren't protecting the statue. And presumably this will sort of 
you know, disappear eventually. But yeah, that I thought they should just give them the land and the statue back and tax it right. heavily. Or something like this. <laughs> and uh, yeah. yeah, throw all the money into a scholarship fund for, let's say, first generation black college students or something right. like that. The funny thing is that, of course, they actually have changed some things. So, like, there used to be a fence around the statue, and they removed that. So it hasn't remained completely unchanged. Hmm. Yeah. And arguably, by removing the fence, you were removing some protections from the statue. You know. So, um... Yeah. But it... it it's a really big statue, though. That's what yes. struck me of all these photos. <laughs> yes. Like, when you see just the first photo of, like, the statue close up, you don't get a sense of the fact that it's enormous. It is enormous. The pedestal itself is enormous. Um, it's, it is yeah. monumental. I mean, the pedestal itself is a square, right? With steps and you can mm -hmm. sit on it. I mean, it's, it's, it is huge. You know, you can easily have sort of like 10 people, you know, it's like 10 people by 10 people as a square. You know, you can easily be sort of wow. sitting on it, standing on it, walking around it. It's a giant, you know, and then it sort of tapers upward <laughs> and then you get the huge pedestal with mm -hmm. the statue on it. And the whole thing, I don't know how tall it is. Um, I mean, the pedestal itself must be like 20 feet tall or something. Yeah. 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 There's been shots of people standing on it, and it's easily quite a bit taller than they are. Yes, so. it's very large. <laughs> um, yeah. So out of curiosity, did they start with the other statues because they were smaller? Were they, like, easier to yes. get to? Yeah, 100%. Because Jefferson <laughs> Davis isn't on a horse, and his pedestal isn't that tall. Uh -huh. He's in a monument... Um, that's a little more interesting. It has this big sort of, um, colonnade behind him. It's all these columns behind him. It's sort of the specific arch and he's sort of standing in the middle of it. Um, uh, but that made it, right, it's fairly easy to topple him. It's also sort of just him. He's not on a horse. So it's a, it's a big enough statue, but none of the same complications. It wasn't as high by any stretch of the imagination, you know, sort of normal person height. <laughs> so, um, the pedestal, um, so that was all part of that. And then Lee is sort of the biggest, but Stonewall Jackson um, and Jeb Stewart, who are the other two big ones. There is actually another one who is part of the Confederate Navy, but sort of nobody quite knows who he is as much. So he has been graffitied less and talked about less, but he'll he'll go, presumably. But it's these big four that are the main <laughs> point. Yeah. And um, essentially, they are sort of waiting um, because it really would be dangerous to remove them. I mean, really dangerous and not just to the people nearby. I don't really know if, I mean, on some level, I don't know if people could topple it, <laughs> any of those, but also yeah. so one of them is sort of right in the middle of this. They're all kind of in the middle of the street, but some of them have more land around them. Um, others have less or so one of them's right, like in a sort of turnaround. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you'd probably, you'd ruin the street. I mean, so there'd be, <laughs> like, real logistics of trying to yeah. topple some of those. Yeah. Um, they're just so impossible. Um, and even, and like I said, the one that's up on the hill by us, the sort of Libby Hill, um, that one, it's not actually the size of the statue, but how tall that pillar is. You know, so that, that would be dangerous. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of the issue with the ones that are still around. Yeah. Um, but yeah, if you see the Lee one, just the fact of its size, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I did Pretty see cool. instructions on Twitter from, um, 
I think an Egyptologist who was writing about how to topple a statue just in case you were curious, mm-hmm. I guess. <laughs> um, and, you know, she talked about, like, the trick is, like, you get some ropes or chains around the statue and then you need, like, a group on each side and... So, like, one group pulls and the other group pulls and you sort of get it rocking right. back and forth. Yeah, um, yeah. which I think is what they've about done it the others. As in, like, if you want to bring down an obelisk, but mm-hmm. uh, it does seem a bit more daunting when you're standing there staring up at, like, the hooves of the horse. And Yes. No, I think for the others, know. I think for the others, yes, absolutely. I think that that's, I think that's probably how they brought those down. But some some are just too big, you know. Yeah. I mean, the safety of the <laughs> people involved. There's you just oh my gosh, yeah. I yeah. have no idea how much those things weigh, but you know, it's the others. I mean, the Jefferson Davis one, I'm sure, was also very substantial. The one by VCU was sort of, I think, the normal. That's the one. That's the size of statue you're thinking about toppling, right? Um, or maybe even yeah. something sort of between those sizes. Um, but something that is truly monumental yeah you know um because there's been a lot written about the fact that a lot of these are these sort of what um i mean essentially carbon copies except they're not carbon of course mold they're sort of just these molded copies right um yeah the essentially the daughters of the confederacy um sons and daughters but i think largely the daughters of the confederacy paid a lot of northern factories who created these molds for a bunch of these statues and just made a ton of them Right, they went up around the South mm-hmm. in the 1890s and the 1920s, especially. Yeah. And I have a feeling that some of the ones in Richmond are either unique, so not sort of one of those copies, really, um, or certainly they're sort of bigger and on a larger scale. I mean, because Richmond was the capital, right? So they were very much right. <laughs> created to make a specific point. Um which all yeah. the statues were, but these were sort of more so, right? It's why those pedestals are so huge, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, the pedestals are monuments in and of themselves, right? So there is this really specific way in which um, they were meant to make a point, and they are still making it, and they really achieve their purpose. I mean, they're sort of supposed to be too big to topple, you know? Not that mm-hmm. that was necessarily the original point, but... It is kind of the point, right? The South fell, but these statues won't, essentially. Right? So that is kind of the point. Um. Yeah. (laughs) Which is funny, because I know that I've read that Lee especially said something like, let's not cling to the, you know, the war, you know, don't put up statues of me after I'm dead, please. Um, But clearly, somebody with an agenda was like, well... We're going to do right. it anyway. Well, there are two sides to that. One is that he, um, you know, he was very much, I would say, sort of a politician <laughs> in a lot of ways. He was, of course, mm-hmm. a military general as well. But in that sense, right, the war is over. The war has been lost. So we reintegrate into society. That's it. And forget the war. And in a lot of ways, he was right. It is worth pointing out he was absolutely also a white supremacist. But he definitely sort yeah. of foresaw... And obviously a slaveholder. I mean, you know, all of these things. But he wow. definitely kind of, I think, foresaw in a way that reintegrating was the the better route. Don't have monuments, don't have that division. That there were definitely ways in which white supremacy could remain. Slavery wouldn't. 
you know, and he, of course, lost mm-hmm. his plantation. That was Arlington, which the Union, and particularly, right, the guy at the time who's in charge of creating the cemetery, turned it into mm-hmm. one because his son had been killed, partly. Right? Buried, started burying oh, yeah. them in the um, Arlington yeah, house. Started burying right? them in the Rose Garden. Yeah. In Mrs. Lee's Rose Garden, right? And, of course, it, it <laughs> oh, grew from gosh. there. Yeah. But he was so angry. I mean, it wasn't everybody, but, um, right. But angry, not just, I mean, that his son had died in the war so much, but that, that Lee, right, this man who was supposed to be all the things he was supposed to be, wasn't, right? He was a traitor. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to make sure he couldn't come back to his mansion, you know, that he didn't just get to pretend nothing had happened at the end. And so, you know, in some ways he didn't. But on the other hand, he definitely foresaw that a large portion of the white population really could, mm-hmm. right? Kind of go on pretending that almost nothing had happened. Right. And I think the sort of idea of not building monuments and all that was part of that, right? If you keep these things alive, the North will continue to see you kind of as an enemy. And of course, in a lot of ways, that that is sort of what has happened. Both of those things have happened. White supremacy was kept alive. Right. <laughs> But also, there has always been that division. There's been a very strong division north and south. There continues to be a very strong division north and south. Yep. So, you know, even the idea that people would still call the Civil War the War of Northern Aggression, when the Civil War was started (laughs) by the South, is amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's not actually amazing. It's ridiculous. But, you know. Well, (laughs) it's like, it's like Vietnam calling the Vietnam War the War of American Aggression. You know, it's... yes. You gotta blame somebody, right. and uh, <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's hard to just be like, "Yeah, we uh, we messed up on that yeah. one, guys." Well, and um, we talked last time, right, all about iconography, and this time we're actually going to talk about sort of decolonizing yeah. medieval studies and academia and life, and that's really what this is about, right? Mm-hmm. And so, someone posted on Twitter or Facebook or something um, that taking these statues down is not erasing history. Um, Someone had a hilarious meme where they showed um, a picture of um, from the American Revolution, right, of colonists toppling a statue of King George. And it said, and that's why nobody knows who won the American Revolution. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes. (laughs) More to the point, of course, nobody knows who he fought it against, which is equally hilarious. Um, King George, of course, famously turns up in the freaking musical. Right? Tiny little known yeah. musical called yep. Hamilton. Yes. Where yeah. he has a, an excellent bail. Amazing little bit that yes. he gets. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Right. So that, just the idiocy of that aspect, right? The point, of course, isn't actual history. It's how we remember it. Um, so that's the ones that we talked about that last time. But the thing that was on Twitter this time was um, that, right, toppling the statues isn't about erasing history. Erasing history is the fact that these statues were put up in the first place on land that actually belonged to people who you probably can't name. Yes. Right? That's erasure. This comes to mind, actually, very strongly for me, because there's a there's a park near here where there's a natural spring, and we call it Merrill Spring. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what its original name was. There's a society called the Friends of Merrill Spring just went and put up a plaque in a Native American language, and it's translated as Medicine Spring. Um, when I when I googled the whole deal, I did find a, I think, Ho-Chunk website that talked a little bit that about yeah. 
the the springs, mm-hmm. which were considered to have medicinal value. Right. Um, but I don't think Medicine Spring was is a translation of its original name. But also, but that's what they think. It I should have be called no in idea English. how. Yeah. Okay. I assume that they know somebody who knows somebody, right? And they didn't just pull this out of you know thin air. But also, I couldn't find a transliteration. And it's like the alphabet has some letters that I do not identify. Right. I mean, I, you know, like A's with a little sedia hanging down right. and stuff. And I asked on their Facebook page, hey, how do you pronounce it? And nobody's got back to me. Ah, well, you know. <laughs> so I was like, I like that you're trying. Right. Um, at least when they renamed Lake Calhoun up in Minneapolis, yeah. like everybody learned to pronounce the new, the new right. name of it. Well, that's a big thing, right? Re, I mean, renaming. Which um, is like... Un- Bidet Makaska, I'm yeah. going to say. But I mean, the idea of unnaming, um, unnaming, I guess, monuments and natural areas, right? Um, yeah. I think about this a lot because everywhere you go in south central Wisconsin, there are Indian mounds. And it's interesting to try to reconceptualize the geography that you're standing on as they would have seen it, you know, 5,000 mm-hmm. years ago or whatever. Like, these are quite old, but um, like a park that I happen to run in a lot, there's this amazing hill and all the mounds are at the top um, because it was a sacred place for them. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, like Denali. Right. Mount Denali in Alaska. Yeah. Um, and that that is absolutely right. An important reminder of, you know, when you name something, <laughs> it assumes that you have the right to. Yeah. Which is not true for anything in North America if it's named with something that's not indigenous, right? <laughs> um, right. Well, even that, like, renaming things reconceptualizes how they seem. Mm-hmm. Like, the Mississippi River... Um, we see it as one entire river. I believe that originally the native groups that lived along it would have had like a name for their individual stretch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we'd kept all of those, maybe we would conceptualize it more as like many rivers sort of coming right. together. A sort of series of. In one place. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's what we do with stretches of highway, if you think about that, right? Different places yeah. have different names, you know. It might sort of all be Highway 20, but it's called different things. Yeah. Um, it's the Adams or the Kennedy or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's not like we don't understand that concept. Right. Um, but yeah, it is it is absolutely important. And so as that sort of becomes more common, right, um, there are some important changes that happen. Um, and that's actually, ooh, so decolonizing. This is sort of our goal for today, um, is to talk about things exactly like this, right? Um, so um, taking away, right, sort of um, allowing the original names um, to be the name that people use, right? Um, so removing sort of all the names that have been put on top, usually Eurocentric, very usually Anglo-centric, but occasionally, right, um, French, 
maybe Spanish, a couple yeah. places, right? Um, Florida, parts of California, right? The South, Southwest. Yeah. But so, right, sort of removing those names, right? Um, and restoring, restoring the names. This is what we're going for. Um, the traditional names are ways to reshape the way we think of our country, right? And particularly the fact that we remember that we are, if we are not indigenous, right? Um, anyone who's not indigenous, right. who's not Native American, um, is an immigrant, right? And it is a way of reminding mm -hmm. people of that, right? That this country, we sort of think of it as Western and European, all these things, and it very much isn't, right? We are sort of guests and visitors here. Yeah. So starting with like decolonization is sort of the the idea behind a lot of this. Um but let us start with actual colonization. <laughs> um colonialism. Yes. All right. So here's my definition, my personal definition that's kind of cobbled together from other definitions. Colonialism is the violent conquering, settling and exploitation of a territory and people. Colonialism requires the cultural erasure of indigenous people through linguistic, religious and social oppression via a variety of institutional racisms that force indigenous people to conform to the social, cultural, linguistic, and religious norms of the colonizing group. And what that is to say, right? So obviously, the sort of violent conquering and settling and exploitation is well known. But more specific is the erasure, right? On all these different levels. Yeah. So not just the atrocities like genocide, but also things that are much more subtle. Right. So the idea that um, Native American children would be sent to public schools and not be allowed to speak their language. Right. Be punished for mm -hmm. speaking their language. Right. So linguistic erasure, religious erasure, make sure they're all Christian. Right. And then this goes to sort of right social oppression, of course, comes through a wide variety of institutions um, and f the sort of forced conformity. Right. Um, you have to sort of be like us, but of course you can't ever quite be like us. Um, yeah. And that really... You have to give up your traditional ways of dress. Yes. You know, you you wear a suit and tie, right. you, wear, you wear a skirt. Right. Yes. Traditional gender expressions. Do your hair. Traditional concepts of gender, right? Like two-spirit, which of course had to go away. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, homie baba, name check homie baba, um, the idea of being not quite white... Um, also Franz Fanon, Gayatri Spivak, and Saeed, of course. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I'm gonna, yeah, okay. I'm gonna keep my opinions about Homie Baba to myself. Well, yes. I mean. Uh, but Spivak, Saeed, Fanon, they're all yes. great. Um, um, I mean, Baba and Saeed both have issues, obviously. <laughs> but they're both important to the study of post-colonialism, yes. right? So post-colonial studies is kind yes. of started, not exactly, right? But we tend to sort of look at some of the origins for post-colonial studies as being 1978, Edward Said's Orientalism, mm -hmm. right? Which sets the lot yes. up. Major book. I have heard of a story, actually, of a woman who was studying abroad in India when she read Orientalism, and she went to her advisor and she said, I can't keep doing this and she just went home wow from after reading orientalism mm. so yeah wow. and as somebody who went through you know 
um, Asian studies program, it did feel like it introduced a lot of conflict into my research, mm-hmm. just in terms of inquiring into your own motives for doing things and learning things. Yep. And like, maybe there comes a point where just being like, I'm studying this because it's really neat is maybe not right. yes. good enough. <laughs> yeah. It is really neat. I mean, I encourage everybody to learn a foreign language, learn an Asian language. Yes. They're really great. You don't have to conjugate verbs. Right. <laughs> yes. A++ tones are not that hard, but right. um, after a while, you have to you have to ask yourself some hard questions. Yes. And that's basically the idea, right? So orientalizing, of course, the term. So now we call it postcolonial studies because this is um, a few yeah. reasons. One, of course, is the fact that colonization can happen anywhere. <laughs> so it's not actually right. just about the West, which is the Occident, colonizing the Orient. Right. Um, Japan was also right. an empire. You get right? situations like, yes, <laughs> Japan did terrible, terrible yes. things <laughs> during World War yeah. II. Uh, before that, China ruled Vietnam for a thousand yep. years, you know? Yeah. Um, so post-colonial studies acknowledges, right, it's actually a way of decentralizing, um, decentering, sorry, the European aspect of Orientalism. Orientalism yeah. presupposes the West versus the East. And post-colonial studies acknowledges that everybody at various times in history has done some terrible stuff, and we need to look at it all. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So there's something much more yeah. open about that. Um, and also, of course, that's important for something like the Middle Ages, um, when you have things like the Crusades, right? You have to look at, you have to be able to look at these things from a center that is not just European. And that's very, very important. Yes. Yeah. So that's part of decolonizing, right? Um, looking mm-hmm. at, first of all, colonization, but also trying to look at it from a viewpoint that is not solely European, white, male, Christian, Straight, cis, <laughs> all of these things, right? Um, yes. The things that we temp- typically think of as, like, the norm. Yes, exactly. If we're handing out accolades. Right. Um, so, Orientalism is fantastic in, the, in a lot of ways, but also does sort of do that, right? Which is wait, now why it's now post-colonial studies. Um, but, of course, the yeah. idea was, yeah, the Orient, the East, the West looks at the East and thinks of it as exotic, right? Mm-hmm. And... The ways in which that is problematic. You see this all over in actual, like, fine Absolutely. art. There was a whole genre of mm-hmm. paintings where painters would dress up their mm-hmm. subjects in, you know, sort of pseudo-Turkish clothing, yep. silks. The idea and, of the harem, um, right? Yeah. John Singer Sargent actually did some very interesting portraits of, I think, uh, young Jewish women who were, you know, attached to fa- families that were patrons of his. Mm-hmm. I think that the genre is called Odalesque. Yeah. Am I remembering yes. that correctly? So there's a famous one. Ooh, we got to footnote this yeah. because um, Ong uh, created a very famous portrait, La Grande Odalesque, um, and 1814. Uh, and that specific painting, which is super famous, um, the Gorilla Girls <laughs> did a Gorilla Girl art version of it. Um, nice. Yes. And the Gorilla Girls, of course, took their name. They're, um, right, Gorilla artists, tactics, right? Um, and so one of their big campaigns, they've now, of course, been around for decades, but one of their big campaigns was um, something, oh gosh, I'm going to get the percentages slightly wrong because I'm not actually looking at it, but um, 
something like, you know, 85% of the nudes um, in the modern wing of the Met are female, but, you know, 5% of the artists or something. So what does a woman have to do to get into the Met Museum? Um, and what, and so they yeah. did this version. It's, it's Ong's Odalisque, but with a gorilla mask on. Um, <laughs> and they had a sort of variety of these types of things. Um, yeah. But exactly. And that's the point, right? Is that in this case, of course, it's not just the sexism aspect, <laughs> but very much that exoticism, right? The West looking yeah. at the East as sort of, right, the exotic. Um, it's different. It's often seen as more primitive in certain ways. Yeah, which is um, why women don't wear you know, clothes. Rulers, <laughs> theoretically, yes. I suppose. Um, yes. You know why they're keeping the women separated in the in the harem, for example. Yep. Um, yeah. Instead of it just being a place where we can get away from you jerks right. or whatever. Yes, right. Well, that they were seen as, yeah, instead of being similar yeah. to like the women's part of the household, which is what it was in Europe, as though they were somehow, right. yeah, sex slaves willing, you know, waiting for the master to come in and, you know, all that stuff, stupid stuff. And yeah. um, at the same time, of course, there is simultaneously the image of the Eastern woman is completely covered. Right? So this idea mm-hmm. somehow of Islam as both permissive and exotic in a way that Christianity doesn't allow, but also oppressive in a way that, you know, Christianity supposedly isn't. And that these are two things that can be, yeah. right? It's sort of Orwellian, that you can hold the, both of these ideas simultaneously mm-hmm. somehow. Yeah. Right. The other big, the other big Orientalist um, art tradition that comes to mind is the picturesque, where people would go and paint all these sort of ruined buildings, yes. and with no reference to like the people who were still like living in the area. Yes. Um. Um, I actually want to give a shout out. This is slightly different, but the grand tradition of painting right the American West, right, open spaces, no nope, yes. untouched, untamed wilderness, right. Maybe one tumbleweed in the distance. Yes, as yeah. though there were not, of course, lots of people living there right native americans for example yeah yeah um as though this is this wild untouched place just waiting for you know european white christian etc men to come in and conquer it and tame it and blah blah right yes um and i <laughs> would like to give a shout out here to kent monkman who's a fantastic artist uh first nation canadian um also performance artist uh, performance alter ego mischief brilliant in so many ways but has some fantastic stuff <laughs> to say and also some fantastic works of art that comment on this tradition um, and also very much with sort of gendered overtones uh, sexuality right that sense of the conqueror right the male coming in to sort of conquer this untamed wilderness which of course is female right and is untouched um, the ways in which um of course, if even if the people were there, they'd be viewed definitely as sort of primitive, savage, all these. But it's actually, they're, they're yeah. not even there. They've been erased from the landscape where they, of course, lived, right? Um, so all yeah. of these things, yeah. So it's a, it's a very sort of prominent idea. But it's also, this is sort of the point, right? We, this is the history that, that we learn. This is the literature that we read. It's the culture that we have. So when people are saying about the statues, right, toppling history, we're forgetting history. No, right? We've already we have absolutely it. already forgotten it. We never learned it, right? And that's mm-hmm. the problem. So this is why decolonizing is about 
completely shifting the way we think about things. <laughs> um, one of the places that, of course, this can be instituted is school, right? Um, arts organizations, museums, right? All the places that we go to to sort of mm-hmm. see history and culture and so on, changing the way they present it, right? Um, when you go to the Met Museum, uh, one of the obvious paths that you go through takes you through ancient Egypt and then Greece, Rome, right? This is how we view civilization. I think we yep. did this. <laughs> Absolutely we did, because that's what you yeah. do. And the stuff is amazing. Mm-hmm. Of course it's amazing. Yeah. They took down an entire temple and rebuilt it inside the freaking museum. <laughs> Which is incredible. Yeah. And lovely, but obviously also kind of problematic in various ways. And so that's potentially, of course, a discussion for a different time, you know, why the British Museum will never ever give back what are known as the Elgin Marbles, which are, of course, everything that he pillaged from Greece, uh, particularly from the Parthenon. Um, mm-hmm. But that being said, right, the fact that museums have a lot of stuff that arguably they shouldn't have. <laughs> the, the more important point behind that, of course, is the fact that um, the, the idea that the British Museum feels that it has a right to the Elgin marbles, the fact that Lord Elgin thought he had a right to take them. Right? Right. This idea that somehow our civilization, Western, European, white, etc. Um, so this is ours generally, not necessarily yours and mine specifically, but um, is somehow based on ancient Greece that then goes to Rome and then, of course, goes through Western Europe eventually to England. It sort of bypasses, therefore, modern Greece, right, which gets left out entirely. And this sense somehow, (laughs) right, that essentially he is whitewashing the history of Greece Mm -hmm. by doing this, right? By saying these are really a foundation of England's culture and not of modern Greece's culture, right? Right. So... No, it's it's uh, it's intense. The other day, I was complaining that I didn't feel like my undergraduate philosophy curriculum had included any philosophers of color or you know non-white philosophers. Mm-hmm. And the person I was talking to said, "Well, would would the ancient Greeks count as non-white?" Yes, and it's like they would have probably thought of themselves as <laughs> as not right. white. But I mean, also at that point, white. What does that right. even mean? In five hundred, you know, four hundred. Yes. Well, this is actually my favorite whatever, thing but. Um, because the Greeks. Yeah, this is something because this is where right I start my theater history classes with the Greeks, but specifically yeah. with the idea that they are that they aren't white, right? Um, so we think of ancient Greece and, of course, then Rome and so on as full of white men and white marble, basically. Right. And neither yeah. of these things yep. is true. <laughs> um, so yeah. first of it's, all. Um, hmm? Oh, no, I already had linked to that piece by Barthes um, about the Roman haircut. Yes. That they put on everybody who appears as a Roman in a movie yes. just to make them look appropriately Roman, yes. um, no matter what their origins might actually yes. be. Um, and this is really important because the Mediterranean. So this is true for Greece, obviously, and also for Rome later. Um Huge variety of skin tones, right? Tremendous variety. And you include people from North Africa and even further south in Africa, right? Um, so there's a very wide variety of peoples. And of course, when Greece 
when we what we think of as classical Greece. So Homer writes in 750, but classical Athens is mm-hmm. really the 400s into the 300s. Yeah. And at that period, right, Persia, which is, of course, Iran, is the big powerhouse. Areas around Turkey, right, North Africa, that's Egypt, right? This is, these have been the cultural centers of the world. Greek has really been a kind of backwater, right? And this is their explosion <laughs> onto the scene, basically. Yeah. Um, and they do incredible, incredible, extraordinary stuff in about a hundred years, right? Um, only the philosophers, right? So Aristotle and Plato and Aristotle are the 300s, right? But everything else is in the 400s, yeah. Homer and Hesiod, of course, in the 700s. But you have this very quick moment, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And first off, they're definitely not all white or even white, <laughs> Right. Secondly, obviously, when we're talking about sexuality, their view of sexuality, specifically homosexuality, is not the sort of what is considered the modern Western heteronormative view. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's explicitly in some of Plato's dialogues. Absolutely. A bunch of them. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So there's that, of course. Right. And that's something that tends to be sort of glossed over, except, of course, by people who are themselves gay, who then, you know, seize on it as a sort of. Yeah. Um, this idea that if our civilization is in fact founded on ancient Greece, then homosexuality is okay. But finally, right, the idea of white marble is also absolutely not true because it was all painted bright colors, right? Um, and so the fetishization of white marble is, is ours, right? It really is created sort of in the Enlightenment. Yeah. Um, and the Michelangelo, you know? Yeah, right. The Renaissance came back and did all the, that's what you, that's like white marble. Beautiful pieces, oh, of course. But. You know, but that—that's a very different sense, right? Um, and so yeah. that idea of whiteness, right? That's created, sort of, it's f- sort of perpetuated by the Renaissance, um, but then by the Enlightenment, they know that the Greek statues were painted, right? Oh boy, I didn't realize it was that that long ago. Oh yeah, they know by like the 18th because um, essentially. By the 1700s, definitely, um, they have been digging up statues that were buried or, you know, whatever, with the paint still on them. So they start to see it. Okay. Right. There you go. Um, And so there's some specific moments where there's the sort of decision to ignore that (laughs) Um, and to continue the sort of fetishization of, of whiteness. And the practice of sort of creating, right, an artistic and historic legacy for that sense of whiteness, right, that stems all the way back to ancient Greece, becomes then very much that creation of sort of the modern West, right, as white. And so, of course, the Enlightenment is doing this at the exact same time that they're also saying all men are created equal, Mm -hmm. and also, right, um, perpetuating the transatlantic slave trade. So all these things are going on simultaneously. Um, And there's a lot of, again, right, sort of Orwellian holding these two thoughts simultaneously of slave trade, (laughs) but all men are created equal, but also right fetishization of whiteness. Really, when you say men, you definitely mean white. You definitely mean men and you definitely mean white. Men, white men. And so how different would our history be if at that point they had said, oh, you know, when we look at the mosaics, we see all these different skin tones. And now we realize that these, supposedly white marble statues were painted bright garish colors 
it's harder to tell what color the skin tones were because those pigments disappear faster, but I mean, now, even with the electron microscopes and stuff, it's still hard. Um, but, you know, they could look at these things and say, who knows, right? But maybe we need to rethink the whiteness at <laughs> the heart of yeah. our history. Um, they did not do that. Yeah. But history, our view of it would be very, very different if they had. Yeah. Presumably. Right? Yeah. And so I do sort of want to give a shout out. Like, there have been abolitionists all along and people who campaigned for these things. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like a marginalized idea in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, like in all of Jane Austen, I think you get like the one moment in Northanger Abbey where the the adopted daughter sort of asks, you know, her returned father figure, like, how's the slaves in uh, Barbados or wherever he was? Right. And everybody looks at her and is kind of like, we don't mention that. Um, but it does like slow, it throws the entire, I I mean, I know Saeed Mm -hmm. talks about this extensively in like the part two of, of Orientalism, but it does throw the entire book into question because you get this money where they don't own slaves nearby, but you know, everybody's conscious that it's still going on. Yep. And, um, it does seem like in many ways, Jane Austen was probably an abolitionist, but not like out campaigning or anything i think she's right spent most of her time writing letters in bath or whatever yes um yeah well and that's i mean that's sort of true for a lot of people right um and the interesting thing is that england there's some very famous things that did happen. i mean um turner has a very famous painting um of the slave the slave ship during a storm and you can see right they've Presumably oh, yeah. been throwing people overboard. Um, and it was, he entered an exhibition right around the time England did ultimately outlaw the slave trade, right? Mm-hmm. But of course, even then, right? So now we're into the 1800s, but, um, even then they're still, of course, making money off of it. But it's one of those interesting things where countries like England or Belgium, right? They toppled Leopold recently, right? So there's been statue yeah. toppling going on all over the world. God, Leopold deserved it. Oh, yeah. But that- <laughs> I went running in Brussels and I was I was like, I can't believe they've got statues of this guy up. Yeah. But that idea, right, that essentially that I, because it's so far away, that it seems like it's not your fault. Right. Yeah. Um, and of course, that isn't true. Right. But it has allowed a lot of that pretense. And that is something, right, that is very important. If we thought of if we thought of things differently, if we th- thought of Western culture as based on groups of peoples who may not have been defined as white, (laughs) things would be very different. If we didn't insist on the whiteness of the Greeks, right, things would be very different. And so the whiteness, you know, of Italy. Um, And every time people come out with this stuff, there's controversy, right? So we'll probably link to a lot of the stuff that I use when I teach, Um, where there was a was it a live series, a cartoon series? There's a series, I think, um, on sort of Roman England a few years ago, probably on the BBC, but who knows. Um, and Mary Beard, I think, had been the, you know, advisor or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there was at least one primary character who was African, black, African, right? Um, and he's based on a real guy. Oh, I think I remember this. Yeah. You know, there were members of the Legion who were from Africa. Right? Yeah. I mean, this is Rome and not just North Africa. It's a huge empire. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Lots of Africa, right? They had a they 
welcome to live. Um, and this is how you should became a citizen. So he was a real guy. And we know he was stationed in England. But, you know, she got all this hate mail and stuff, right? Um, people are like, oh, see, for diversity, you're doing this for diversity. Yeah. No, this is real history. We've been whitewashing it. Right? And you have to undo that. But the idea that people feel threatened, if you suggest that the Greeks weren't white, <laughs> uh, people pretty much know that they were not necessarily heteronormative, but the idea that they mm -hmm. weren't white bothers people. What if we viewed Plato and Aristotle not as white philosophers? Yeah, that's important. Right? But, you know, there is this sense in which people sort of feel threatened when you do that. And so that's that's sort of the point behind decolonizing. Right? Is to try and change all of that. Um, I wanted to give also a shout out to Yinka Shonibara, who's a British-Nigerian artist um, with a disability, whose work uh, he has a whole series of works that comment specifically on the Enlightenment paradox of, uh, on the one hand, science and innovation and, right, all men are created equal, and on the other hand, the slave trade. Um, and so that paradox going on, right, simultaneously having to hold those those ideas. Um, and he has some really interesting work sort of based based on that. Okay. By the way, um, we will put links but, to all this art stuff we're talking about in the comments. I know it's uh, difficult yes. when people Sorry. talk on and on about right. art, and uh, you ne you need to see it. But you can definitely yeah. look Google yeah, this do stuff. It. Yeah, Google these people; they're awesome. Um, but this sense, right? The goal is, um, throughout sort of all parts of our lives, <laughs> to try and change the way we look at things, right? Um, so even the city you live in, right? Who, wherever anyone lives, right? The city you live in, um, whose land is it on? Right? Um, large chunks of Virginia are on the land of the Powhatan Confederacy, who are very well known because, of course, of, you know, Jamestown and so on. But, and when I say large chunks of Virginia, I mean basically around Richmond and the area where yeah. I live, right? <laughs> but, you know, but things like that, knowing that, finding out things like what were the names for some of these places, right? Some places sort of still hold their original names, but the peoples have frequently disappeared, right? Um, so uh, Manhattan, mm -hmm. right? Um, or New York has a lot of place names, really. Like, you know, Canarsie, I think. The other thing that surprised me when I heard about it is that there are a lot of Native American tribes that aren't officially recognized by the government. Yes, and that's, of course generally about money so there's like yeah so there's the ones that you you hear about mm -hmm. all the time the cherokee the mm -hmm. apache Dakota. um you lakota. know the things you yeah. grow up hearing mm -hmm. their names yeah lakota uh but then there's like there's tons of tribes yes. and you know a lot of them spend a lot of time lobbying for government recognition yes. because it means that they could do things like sometimes put up a casino on their reservation and make money that way or something like that otherwise they've been reduced to severe poverty. Yes. There was just recently um, a case, and we'll have to link to this, I can't quite remember how it went, but where what happened, I th oh gosh, this is a tribe in maybe somewhere northeast. And they, because officially, um, if you were recognized before a certain date, um, then you can apply for all sorts of federal recognition. And if you were enrolled after that, 
your money works differently or what you're allowed to sort Mm -hmm. of have works differently. Because basically what the government sort of said was, and of course this is astonishingly unfair given the fact that again, it's, it's all their land. I mean, this is how much money is all this stuff worth? It's all theirs. Right. Um, so it's not like they're asking for much comparatively. (laughs) They're asking for something like right now. Um, all the money that reservations are supposed to be getting for COVID relief hasn't been released. Or at least it hadn't been up to sort of a week or so ago. Yeah. No ostensible reason, really, of course, right? Just it hasn't been because, right. you know. But um, at this point, the epidemic has been going on for, yes. let's call it five months yeah. in the U.S. Right. Yeah. And of course, reservations are horrifically hit and all of these things. But one of the things that uh, happens, of course, is that essentially there was sort of this deal made that if you w- if you want to become a recognized tribe after the certain date, which I think is in the 20s, that essentially you can have federal recognition, but not any money and not necessarily ownership of land, right? They're all, they become all these restrictions about federal recognition, right? And so recently there was sort of this law decided for this one tribe where they're going to get to sort of keep the stuff that they had, or maybe they'd bought some extra land where they allowed to do that based on their recognition status at this certain date way in the past. (laughs) Um, And of course, what it means is a lot of Virginia's tribes have actually been recognized much more recently, Mm -hmm. which means that they sort of, they have federal recognition as a tribe. So they have that status, right? That, which is bizarre because that basically just recognition can just mean like, yes, you're allowed to say that you're a tribe, which is astonishing because you know i mean if you're of german descent like you're of german descent you know so that idea that somehow first of all of course the tribes are sort of massacred and then whoever's left may not be allowed to officially call themselves native american because the government doesn't want to let them anyway so um just recognition first of all but then anything after that, right, gets much more complicated. And basically, yeah, it's based on money. It's based on, like, tax status. It's based on all of these things that the government, right, doesn't want to give up, basically. So all of that stuff is sort of horrific. But, you know, I do think that if the more we decenter things, the more we decolonize our conversations, the more people think of local places and so on as indigenous landmarks, <laughs> the more people will sort of be behind the idea that... Native Americans deserve, I mean, obviously, right? Land, money, healthcare, legal system, all of these things, (laughs) right? Yeah. But it is, right, people know the acronym People of Color, POC, um, but there's also BIPOC, right? Black and Indigenous People of Color, um, because the groups that are sort of tend to be most erased um, in culture. Um, And of course, Indigenous tends to be the most erased, right? And so one of the things... um, we're going to sort of, next time we're going to talk lots of examples. This is a two-parter. So about decolonizing yes. the Middle Ages specifically, right? Um, but of course, the goal is in museums, in any arts organization, um, but certainly in schools, right? To help people learn all of this stuff to begin with in such a way that then we don't have to sort of unlearn what we thought we knew, right? Because that makes people very defensive, and upset, mm-hmm. right? So what if from the very beginning, we learned that, you know, our country is, of course, Native American, the land where we are, right? The rivers that you know, 
these are their real names. Not maybe the ones you grew up knowing, yeah. but if all of those things sort of started to change. And if we taught history, right? So like 20th century history, it's right. History is seen as the acts of white men, usually yeah. straight, Christian, <laughs> able-bodied, cis, etc. If they were um, not, if they were not straight or, you know, right. cis, that kind of gets covered up. Yes. Like you have to look a lot deeper to find out. Yeah. But also just the idea that, um, for example, like a history department might have special topics classes on African-American history, right? Mm -hmm. Queer history, Latinx history, Asian-American history, which, of course, is already ridiculous because Asian encompasses countless numbers of people, right? (laughs) But we don't say like Chinese-American, Japanese-American, right? We just like Asian-American history. But, um, right, so those are like the special topics classes, which implies, Mm -hmm. of course... And perpetuates the idea that those are somehow removed. And that in the main history yeah. of the 20th century, it's really about white people, right? That those other things aren't somehow integral to the history, which of course they are. Or like civil rights might show up suddenly in the 20th century. You're like, oh, this is suddenly a moment where African-American history matters. Yeah. As though African-American history wasn't integral to the history of the United States. It just suddenly shows up at like specific moments, right? Yeah. Um, I'm a little bit surprised. Like, I had never really thought about this, right? I took English classes. You, We were both English majors um, when yep. we were undergrads. There's an African-American studies department at UW. And I yep. was thinking, why don't they teach, you know, I read like maybe one or two pieces from the Harlem Renaissance, probably, when mm-hmm. I was taking my normal English classes. Why don't they teach more right. black writers? Well, guess where they're teaching them? It's in the African-American studies department. They have a whole class on the Harlem Renaissance. Right. But that's the problem, right? But you have to go looking, right? It's like... Yes. And the... Yeah. And the English department has to also, right, cross-list that class. Yeah. But more than that, in the English department's class on important writers of the 20th century, you can have, like, two straight white Christian blah, blah, blah men. Yeah. Right? And after that, everyone else has to be something else. Right? And this is actually really, really, really important. Because uh, people's first instinct is to say, oh, but then you're going to miss stuff that you should have read. Well, no. Because, you know, the white men you're not reading that, they'll show up in a different class. Yeah. It's fine. Right? I'm going to be honest, I've never read Great Expectations, and I just don't feel like my life has (laughs) suffered that much. Oh, I've read a lot of Dickens. (laughs) I'm a fan. Um, Great Expectations is a lot of fun. <laughs> I mean, he's funny. I've I've enjoyed the stuff of his I've read. Yes. But uh, it would leave me less time for, you know, Afro-futuristic sci-fi novels or That's whatever. That's totally fair, yes. So. But that, right, that idea, that exact idea, yes. Um, and so. Yeah. And the thing is that whatever it is you want to teach, right, you look at your class, you're like, what am I really trying to teach? Am I teaching about character, about genre, about tragedy, about whatever it is, you know? Yeah. You can do that. With writers who are just as good, but got forgotten and erased, right? Mm-hmm. Who happen to be things that aren't all the things we just mentioned, right? And so that's... I had one professor who happens to be, I think, probably the only female professor I took who taught literature as a as an okay. undergrad. And she seemed to go out of her way to choose uh, non-white uh, women authors as much as she could. Mm-hmm. And it surprises me looking back that, like, you know... The person who was teaching critical theory was mostly teaching 
Foucault and Derrida and not ever mentioning Spivak or, right. you know, yeah, the person who was teaching American literature, like, I don't know, we're reading like Krevker's letters from an American ha. farmer, which like, nobody's ever mentioned that book to me ever right. again. You know, it's like, it's like all, you get the feeling it's all white men, white, 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 white. Oh, the Harlem Renaissance. Exactly. Oh, more white men. Yes. Better. She's like, what would life be like if you didn't read Fitzgerald 40 times? And that's the right. Right. You can, of course, you read Great Gatsby in a class or you read, right. You pick one from Fitzgerald. Okay. But then that's your one for that class. Right. Um, And that's exactly sort of the problem. So. On the one hand, thinking somehow that things can only be said with white men, which of course is not true. Um, and you mentioned, right, Afrofuturistic sci fi novels. Um, so Octavia Butler, who has been like in quotes rediscovered, right? <laughs> which is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, she's always been there, but now, right, people delve back into her. But you don't teach her because of quote unquote diversity or equality. You teach her because she is an amazing author who deserves to be taught. Oh, yeah. And she can absolutely fill any number of blanks just as well, Mm -hmm. and probably better than a lot of the white men who are being taught instead, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's no reason why not, right? Um, But that's the exact idea, right? So it's on the one hand, first of all, look at your syllabus and be like, what am I really trying to teach? Look at the curriculum for your department. What are we really trying to teach? If we're really trying to teach history, special topics classes are great, but our actual history of the 20th century class that everyone's required to take needs to include African American history and queer history and Asian American history as integral and not just as something that pops up during the Harlem Renaissance and civil rights, during the Japanese internment, during Stonewall, right? They're there all the way along and they're integral in a lot of ways, right? So Langston Hughes, of course, African American and gay, as is Lorraine Hensbury, as is Baird Rustin, civil rights, right? Um, yeah. So they're, of course, these things are integral, <laughs> And, you know, there's a lot of sort of um, interdisciplinarity and all of that is important, right? And so it's just about sort of decentering the idea that somehow white men have been everything because they have yeah. not, right? And then on top of that, the idea that, so a good example, actually, you mentioned um, when I took a American Lit, <laughs> um, we actually, we read a number of interesting things. I think it was one of the only real survey classes I took at Madison. Um, but one of the things we read was Ceremony, Leslie Marmon Silko, um, mm-hmm. one of the only Native American authors who is included in the canon, um, at yeah. least up until sort of the past few years. But there is also, this was not true of Madison. I want to say the professor I had taught it very well. But um, there is a sort of, or there was a sort of um, aspect of criticism that looked at ceremony and sort of compared it to something like a grail quest, so to take us to the Middle Ages, hmm. which of course is not a good way to look at it because that re-centers it around European legend, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed, of course, to Native American legend, which is what it's from, <laughs> right? So there are two sides to it. First of all, including people, right? Creating a class that really reflects the history and the culture of this country, which is incredibly diverse. But secondly, when you're doing that, make sure not to then recenter everything and interpret it through a Eurocentric <laughs> lens, right? Right. Which in some ways can be even harder 
that can be the hardest part, right? Because you mm-hmm. not only have to reintegrate the history of the U.S. into something that really looks like the U.S. with a huge diversity of people. And of course, this isn't just about the U.S. It's also about the U.S. and global history, right? Um, so you can't also think of the U.S. as at the center of everything. You know, you, your class on the 20th century might also occasionally look at sort of Japan and China, right? What was going on over there? Forget what the U.S. is doing right now, right? The Boer Wars. I mean, there's all this other stuff that's related to the U.S. in some ways, but, you know, mm-hmm. we may not have directly participated. There are also things like World War One in Africa, right? Things that we tend yes. to totally ignore, basically because they didn't happen in Europe, <laughs> right? Even World War Two. The idea that we concentrate much more on Japan. The idea that we should, like, concentrate also... We all know about the Pacific War, right? But we talk about it a lot less. Okay. Yeah. I had to look this up because I honestly have no idea. There's this group of African rocket technicians who show up in Gravity's Rainbow who are called the De Schwartz Commando, Mm. (laughs) who are apparently fictional, but... Honestly, it wouldn't have surprised me if, you know, I go looking now and find out that this is actually, you know, based on something that based on something that really happened that nobody ever mentioned that, you know, right. Somehow they got Africans working in Germany doing rockets or that's not quite, quite true, I don't think. But definitely, (laughs) there's a lot of stuff that is not mentioned, right? World War One. Yeah. There's tons of stuff going on in Africa that we never talk about. Um, I mean, the whole fronts of the war, yes, with Germany, that we don't talk about. And then, obviously, like I yeah. said, we know about the war in the Pacific in World War II. But we talk about really only in sort of general terms, right? We're much more interested in, certainly popularly, much more interested in what happened in Europe. And that, of course, is an aspect of colonialism, right? To talk sort of, we talked a lot about the classical world, um, but also even thinking of sort of things like... Um, decentering the Middle Ages. Some of the things that we'll talk about next time. Some of the more specific examples um, are things like um, we all sort of have heard of Marco Polo, of course, right? Um, but there are a lot of travelers, right? So there's Ibn Battuta, who's mm-hmm. Islamic, right, uh, from Morocco, um, and um, Zhang Ha, who's Chinese, born Muslim, um, and you know, reading about the world from their perspective, right? Um, so just that sort of sense of decentering. There are also important aspects of things like you could teach a Shakespeare class without ever teaching Shakespeare's source texts, right? Um, and here I'm using source texts in the translation um, concept of Shakespeare himself as the source text, Right. For the many translations and adaptations and versions that have come after him. Right. You could teach a whole class on Shakespeare Mm -hmm. that is not in English (laughs) or that is only in translation um, that has nothing to do with Europe. Right. Hmm. And my favorite examples that I absolutely do teach um, are Cesar's Un Tempet, you know, which I do tend to teach with the Tempest. Right. Um, But you don't have to. Um, Or I teach Macbeth and then Throne of Blood which, of course, is a film, but Chrysanna's Throw of Blood, which is the best version of Macbeth on film, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also absolutely its own own thing. Um, but that idea, right? 
that even when you sort of look at these authors that we think of as just the epitome of right what white western male etc cetera, etc cetera, yeah even though shakespeare of course also by but you know oh that's well, controversial but probably was i mean <laughs> you know marlowe was certainly gay so i mean you know yeah well according to doctor who yes. you're correct so i'm gonna go with that <laughs> but that sort of sense of um you know these authors it doesn't have to be they do not have to be the epitome of that eurocentric white male perspective right um yeah and so that's really sort of the key right so it's part of decolonizing right the way we think of things mm-hmm. so next time <laughs> we didn't really get into any of the examples or anything no we will talk about the examples right for example if you wanted yeah. to decolonize your medieval studies curriculum or just interests generally um what might you look at so we will talk more about that but that's sort of generally yeah the idea is just trying to sort of change the way um yeah. undo the whitewashing right uh the things we think we know um so that we have room for all of the things that we've missed right um right. all of the things we've erased yeah i think that this is especially true I think in philosophy, um, which was, you know, my other passion as an undergraduate, that we fall victim to this idea of the the genius, mm-hmm. um, so- someone whose ideas are unique and irreplaceable, and so we study. And in philosophy, ideas are always attached to a person, with possibly the exception of the trolley problem, which yes. is really interesting to me. Um, because that one happens to have come from a woman. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you always study Plato's Theaetetus or, you know, Aristotle's, you know, Nicomantean ethics, or right. you read, you know, you know, the specific book by Foucault. Right. Um, and you, you. Foucault, by the way, awesome, gay, you know. Yes. Died of AIDS. Just a shout out to Foucault there. Yes. Yes. So, you know, we, we like Foucault, but yes, he should be one of many right. voices. <laughs> right. And yeah. he had a very interesting relationship with uh, the governments of, like, Tunisia. And, and, you know, his writings about the Iranian Revolution were very interesting in a historical context. And mm-hmm. But so you have this idea, right, that, that he's a genius and that you can't get through the history of philosophy or... If you leave this one person out, you suffer so badly. But I feel like what we learn from decolonization is that there's always other people whose ideas are as interesting and as foundational. And that if if you seek them out, there's this whole other part of the world that you'd never have insight into otherwise, you know? Yes. And that's the important part, because um, I think frequently, like I said, yes, we think um, this one person's absolutely integral and you have to read about them. But are they? Right. Um, We think of them that way only because how many people have been erased to make room for them. Right. Right. Um, So in some ways, you know, you look at figures like Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, right? Civil rights. The idea that even, right, the Harlem Renaissance, you know, and Langston Hughes, that these are moments where people made themselves impossible to ignore, Mm -hmm. right? And that is why they are part of our history. That as much as 
everyone tried to erase everybody. Couldn't quite erase them. Yeah. Right? Um, you couldn't quite erase Harriet Tubman, right? She was too tough. But all the people who did incredible things, who have been erased, yeah. should be restored. Right? Um, and that's really, really what that's about. Um, is because, of course, there are seldom, there's seldom someone who's really that necessary. Yeah. I think about this, you go to a used no. bookshop, right? <laughs> and you look at all these books that are like... The paperback printing of a novel called Stairways of Glass or something. And you're like, that's a cool title. I've never heard of it. And it's got like effusive quotes on it. And you're like, all of these were like, you know, bestsellers. Like this was, this was, uh, whoever, J.K. Rowling 25, 30 years ago or whatever. Um, or I should go farther back because actually Rowling is older than I. Yes. I'm, I'm feeling... No, I feel 90s, old. Yeah. Yeah, also, 90s. because Rowling now apparently a turf, yes. which is not good. Trans-exclusionary radical feminist. So we have feminist. to re- bring uh, back the death of the author, but... Um, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. No, but like... But Dan Radcliffe, apparently, good person. So you think all of the work that goes into writing a novel and all of the acclaim that you get, and now it's for sale for right. like a dollar in a used bookstop store right and like how many of these novels are good enough that you could you know pick them up and and write a paper about them like i don't know Mm -hmm. say it's like a quarter of them that's still a ton of books that you have never read or heard of uh and then when you look farther like look at the library of congress catalog or whatever Mm -hmm. (laughs) to give one terrifying example like there's just so mm-hmm. much in the history of the United States that even if we're only looking at the United States, like all books that have been written in the United States since like right. 1619 or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. There's so much that you could look at. Right. Well, it's 1619, right? So the yourself. first slave ship. And that alone, right? The idea that that, that is something that has only recently um, probably sort of because the New York Times project based on um, become a date yeah. that we are aware of or that people talk about, right? Um, which is weird because that is undeniably a giant, giant landmark in our history, right? So that that yeah. should be a year that we talk about. We don't talk too much about the whole period between after 1492, right. but before... Largely Spanish, I don't know. Yeah. When did Jamestown get founded? um, Yeah. That, I mean, the Spanish and the French, that is actually absolutely something that should be more frequently taught. I think it's taught in places sort of where they were. So I think like, right, sort of Florida and New Orleans and, Mm -hmm. right, I think some of those places probably cover it. Um, But that is something that should be, that is part of the U.S. history as a whole that we should definitely know more about, right? Um. And yeah, I mean, Jamestown, so 1607 is when we, is when Jamestown was founded, but also kind of the date, because that's sort of the English, first English settlement that survives, right? So we do have this sense, Mm -hmm. I guess, of that as being somehow the start of the U.S., because again, not just Eurocentric, but really specifically Anglocentric, right? But of course it isn't. Right. You know, or we all know Manhattan, like uh, New York, right? 
as a whole, but specifically, right, Manhattan. Yeah, but then yeah. it was Dutch. The story of buying the um, island of Manhattan. New Amsterdam, right? But that element somehow is something that really gets kind of passed over, right? The Dutch influence in colonization, <laughs> in the slave trade, right? That's part of that world history I was saying. Like, the Boer Wars. We should know more about the Dutch and what they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Leopold, right? Oh, boy. Yes. In in the part of yes. the world that I studied, the Dutch East Indies Company. Yeah. That's a big deal and a big, big, hairy problem. They're the villains of the parts of the Caribbean movies, like the first three or something, right? Or the two and three? Yeah. And they should be. I mean, that's... <laughs> right? But... That sense somehow of of what they did with it, right? That of course then will finally end in apartheid, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and instead, what sort of happens again in the way we sort of treat history of the twentieth century is apartheid kind of like comes out of nowhere, and then you have Nelson Mandela, and it's over, right? Um, yeah, and everything was fixed, right? And South Africa lived yes. happily ever after, exactly. Yeah, was, uh, and they played rugby, right? I think. Rugby involved, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Where they won and stuff, yeah. Yes, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, all these things. Yeah, and that all of this stuff is stuff that is integral to history, to global history, of course to the history of the U.S. as well. And we just need to start thinking of these things as tied, right? Yeah. Um, but absolutely, right? The Spanish in the New World. This is something... I talk about this in my classes, uh, continuously <laughs> when we talk about the Americas, which is, I run them through. Columbus, of course, is Italian. Why is he sailing for Spain? Why 1492? Because it's the Reconquista, right? They have kicked out all the Muslims, right? Remaining, the sort of remaining Islamic rulers. They kick out the Jews. Yep. Right? Um, they are Christianizing. They are whitening. They are doing all these things to reclaim their white, straight, Christian, etc., <laughs> European identity. Um, of course, Spain is still very unique. It doesn't work in that way. You can't undo 800 years of history. Yeah. Which is a good thing, because otherwise we wouldn't have all the Spanish food and architecture and everything that we've got. But, you know, nonetheless. So 1492, they need to find a way to sort of, you know, the East, to India... Um, but they obviously can't go marching through sort of Muslim lands because... Just burned that bridge. You know? Yeah. yeah. So this weird guy comes along and is like, I'll do this for you. <laughs> They're like, sure. So that's how you get Columbus sailing for Spain, right? And that's how you get Spain in the New World. And that's where you get things like the Spanish Inquisition, where you get the tremendous, right, um, sort of genocide, Christianizing of the New yes. World, right? Because Spain is absolutely reclaiming their Europeanness. But then you have England, who, of course, fighting Spain, newly Protestant. We're jumping forward a little bit here. But, right, England becomes is Protestant, Spain, of course, Catholic. So that battle gets carried on into the New World. England comes out over. England's kind of late in a lot mm-hmm. of ways, right? 1607. James at 1492, right? There's yeah. a big old jump, right? The French have been over. The French, of course, are also Catholic. We know how England and France feel. We've talked about that before. <laughs> They're fighting. But England, really, it's against France, but it's also very much against Spain. And England only gets, what? England gets a chunk, two-thirds, of North America. None of South America, Central America, also not Mexico. But England ends up getting everything else. Yeah. France, of course, stuck around, though, but, right, Quebec, etc. But basically... 
England gets the rest of it, what is now the US and Canada. And that battle that England had with Spain carries on in the New World, right? And we're still going at it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And so you have this really weird element of the prejudice against immigration and so on being based partly on hundreds of years, right? England versus Spain, but also, of course, on, right, Spain's own colonization of the Americas, suppressing indigenous peoples, and then England looking down both on Spain and on the indigenous peoples, right? So that, and that, all of that carries forward to the way we view the countries, particularly right in Central and South America, Mm -hmm. um, and how we view sort of race and ethnicity when it comes to those countries, right? But the history behind that is really hundreds of years old and goes back to long before, you know, goes back to before England and Spain had actually ended up in the New World, Mm -hmm. basically. So all of that is stuff that really people should know. (laughs) I give, I you know, and I give the sort of like really fast lecture that I just gave in a few minutes and we talk about it, you know, and they remember some of it. But that's something that, you know, there are all these things they shouldn't that they should really already know. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, this is a history people should have heard of before. Yeah, for right? real. It's so integral to our country, right? Um, but we do not learn it. Yeah, it's one of many right. examples of things we don't learn. Well, but anyway, we'll no. talk about more of the next. Yeah, time. so fascinating <laughs> topic. I'm gonna <laughs> finally cut you off and say we we got to wrap up. Yes. So. We did good. Actually, we got through all our material in the estimated time. We just added a bunch of talking about statues at the beginning. So that's cool. Let's see. So this is sort of the first episode of the part two of the second, the first season, let's call it. Yes. Um, (laughs) So listeners will have noticed that there was a break and uh, this is our, our next episode. We're hoping to keep doing some more episodes about race and the Middle Ages and, uh, you know, history of university education and that sort of thing. Um, Please feel free if you have questions on any of these topics or any related topics or any topics whatsoever uh, to give us your questions. We have a Facebook group under Ask Medievalist. We have a website at askmedievalist.com that has a comment form. We are hoping to round up enough questions that we can do sort of a reader Q&A episode um, sometime during this uh, second part of our season. So uh, help us out. Send us your questions. What has been itching around in your head about the Middle Ages since, you know, you heard the term? Yeah, I think that's about it. Uh, <laughs> everybody have a have a good a good week and you know stay safe if you're out protesting and stay hydrated uh seems like sound advice at any time (laughs) and uh until next time keep it medieval bye ask a medievalist is a production of this can't be that hard studios and is not endorsed acknowledged or condoned by virginia commonwealth university or any of its constituent departments Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. 
If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. 